Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to another episode of Audio Judo. I'm Kyle. And I am Matthew. Welcome. We are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Never heard of Pantheon? I encourage you to check it out at pantheonpodcasts.com. Uh, they are adding new podcasts weekly, and there really is something for everyone. I think. Uh, like to think we fit in in the general information category as we try not to limit ourselves to one genre or one artist or one specialty. However... That's the kind of thing that uh, you're interested in. Check out a show like Almost Minute Podcast that looks at the movie Almost Famous and breaks it down minute by minute, quite literally, one minute at a time. Wow. One podcast, one minute. I don't know how they have that kind of content, but... That's pretty cool. Right? And then uh, also Stroll Down Penny Lane, which focuses on the life and work of Paul McCartney. Uh, great choices there and many more to boot. Hmm. And then come back and listen to our stuff because we pretty much always have something new coming out. Yeah, we do. What are we talking about today, Kyle? Uh, have you been preparing for this for the past few minutes? Because uh, I've been sitting on my preferred podcasting hand, uh, <laughs> getting ready to talk about this. I'm about to uh, go ahead and pull it out. Oh, it's, whoa. it's sufficiently numb because uh, today we are talking about The Stranger uh, <laughs> uh, by Billy Joel. I'm pretty much numb from like the waist down oh, okay. right now. Well, that's fine. Anyway, I've been sitting in this chair too long. Oh, okay. The Stranger. The Stranger by Billy Joel. 1977 album, The Stranger. Mm -hmm. It's uh, Joel's commercial and critical breakthrough. Yes, it is. Loaded with hits and melodies and songs that he would play live right up until the present day. Yeah. It's uh, a really, really good album. Uh, and I'm glad we get to talk about it. So, uh, but, uh, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was going to no, say, no, no. so like you kind of said, uh, this was kind of his commercial and uh, critical breakthrough. Uh, before this, obviously, he had the Piano Man came out a few years before this, which was a huge radio hit, but it really didn't sell a lot of albums. The album before this, Turnstiles, didn't even make it into the top 100. And it just, he was basically at this point with Columbia Records where he was kind of like, eh, you know, we're probably going to drop you if your next album isn't successful. And in fact, uh, he, he even said in a uh, Rolling Stone interview. Uh, he said, you have to imagine them sitting there with red pencil going, okay, uh, that's it for this guy. He doesn't come through on the next album and he's gone. Sure. I mean, it was that close. Yeah, it was uh, dire. Yes. Let's assume for a moment that nobody knows who this guy is. Okay. Uh, William Martin Joel <laughs> mm -hmm. was born in 1949 in the Bronx and grew up in the town of Hicksville on Long Island. It's mm -hmm. a great name for a town. It's, uh, Hicksville. I, I was, I'm very confused by this. It's the town of Hicksville in the town of Oyster Bay. Very strange. I don't know how they do things and out my, there. My, that was my assumption, is it's a, a an East Coast, Long Island thing to say, you know, kind of like here we would say, like, we're in whatever county, whatever, in whatever county. city. 
maybe it's the same. Well, it's possible. Counties out here are massive. Yeah. Counties east and even midwest they're are, like, are... They're like four houses in a gas station. That's pretty much it. Okay. But uh, where he grew up would have an enormous influence on his writing oh, yeah. and his style. He dropped out of high school to pursue a music career, which, as we do more and more of these episodes, I'm finding is a pretty regular occurrence. And I don't know if that's still a common thing in the music industries. Like, uh, do superstars of now also start as high school dropouts? Because I feel like back then, if you dropped out and didn't make it, you just went and got a job, like menial, whatever, factory job, and then you lived your life. And I feel like nowadays, do, do they hire... They hire people without a diploma or a GED, like generally. I mean, some places do, I'm sure, yeah. but it's probably. I'm not up on less those type less. of numbers, so. But I feel like this is way more prevalent back then that you just you said, I don't need a diploma. I'm going to make music for a yeah. living, so I'm going to stop going to high school and just and just finished. Anyway, he dropped out, bounced around with a couple of bands for a while in the '60s. The Hassles, right? Nothing was one of, of his consequence. Bands. Attila, Attila, was the other one. Uh, but yeah, they didn't really do anything uh, until his solo career kicked off in 1971. And he made a solo record called Cold Spring Harbor, named after the town on Long Island of the same name. And like I said, that area had a huge influence on him. The album was kind of a dud, though. Mm-hmm. Commercial disappointment, tech disaster, as it was mastered at a slightly higher speed and sounds kind of <laughs> weird. Um, and it had one song on it that I knew. She's Got Away, but that wouldn't get popular from that record. It would actually get popular many years later. Uh, he ended up touring for that record as an opener for Jay Giles, for the uh, uh, Beach Boys, and Badfinger, and other people as well. At some point during all of this, a Columbia executive, Herb Gordon, heard a live recording of a song of his called Captain Jack on the radio, and ended up signing Joel and moving him out. To I Las Vegas, <laughs> to Los Angeles. Oh, I got it. to Los Angeles, where he lived for the next three years, and for six months of those three years, he played piano at the bar of the Wilshire Hotel hmm. as Bill Martin, where he would end up writing "Piano Man" about those experiences. Obviously, in the song, they re- reference yeah. Bill and all those things. So, probably his most famous song, I would guess. I would guess it's uh it's amazing how many people know that song. Yeah, and it, can sing along with it. You ever been on vacation somewhere at a resort and they have a piano lounge? That's like instantly like play piano man. <laughs> and then there's like 80, 80 drunk people like to yeah. like acting like I'm Billy Joel. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. So you released those other uh, records at turnstiles, like you mentioned, Streetlight Serenades, both mm-hmm. modest to disappointing sellers, a couple of minor hits like The Entertainer, Say Goodbye to Hollywood. Uh, but nothing of real consequence. And there was a lot of upheaval at this time. He fired his first manager, Mm -hmm. John Troy, a friend from childhood, and replaced him with his first wife, Elizabeth. And also, somewhere in the middle of all this, he decides the West Coast life kind of sucks and moves back to New York. He then solidifies his band at the time, and they become the Billy Joel Band. Uh, They being Richie uh, Kanata on saxophones and organs, Russell Javors on guitars, Doug Stegmeyer on bass, and the very unappreciated Liberty DeVito on drums. What a name for somebody from New York City. Liberty DeVito. Liberty DeVito. <laughs> I mean, Jesus, that sounds made up. I think but... it probably is made up. Yeah, it could be a stage <clears throat> name, but I don't think it is. Uh, and they would remain his band until the late 80s. Yeah. So a pretty good run of 15, 14, 15 years for a backup band. Yeah. Kind of uh, following up in his career. 
he released a total of 13 studio albums. 12 of those were between 1971 and 1993, and then one more in 2001. But that's really it. Yep. He's done a lot of songwriting uh, since then, um, but not... Uh, he hasn't really released any other studio albums. He's just done compilations and toured. Toured. However, one of the best-selling mu- music artists of all time, uh, depending upon the numbers you use, somewhere between definitely in the top 50, possibly in the top 25. 119 million units certified sold. Uh, he claims 100, not he, but him and Billy Joel and his people claim 150 million sold. Yeah, that's the number I saw. Um, greatest Hits Volume 1 and 2. Sold 11,500,000 copies, went 23 times platinum. Yep, because it's a double album. Yeah, but that is nuts. That's a lot of records. That is a lot of records. Uh, There's one other thing I got to talk about, about Billy Joel's past. Yeah. uh, Because I did not know this uh, until doing this research, and I found it absolutely fascinating. Billy Joel's father, his name uh, was uh, Howard Joel, but he was actually born Helmut Joel mm-hmm. in 1923. Uh, he was a classical pianist and businessman who was born in Nuremberg, Germany, uh, to a Jewish family, which, you know, nothing bad could have happened to them in the 20s and 30s in Germany. Not at all. Uh, Howard was educated in Switzerland, um, and his father had created a really highly successful mail-order textile business called uh, Joel Macht Fabrik. Uh, so obviously the Nazis came to power in Germany and in order to escape, Howard's family emigrated to Switzerland. Um, his father sold his business at a fraction of its value in order to emigrate. Uh, and the family ended up coming to the United States States via Cuba because immigration quotas for German Jews prevented direct immigration to the United States at the time. Uh, Howard became an engineer, but he always loved music. So he, he was a music lover. He was a piano player. So he obviously inspired Billy Joel somewhat, somewhat there. Uh, Billy Joel's mother, Rosalind, she was from Brooklyn, but her parents, Philip and Rebecca, had both emigrated from England. She also really heavily inspired Billy Joel and wanted him to play the piano. She basically forced him to take lessons when he didn't want to when he was a kid, which, thank goodness for that. Sure. Because, uh, you know, probably one of the best known piano players of all time didn't want to take piano lessons when he was a kid. That's usually how that works out. Of course. So back to this album. Like we said, his previous two albums, kind of duds, didn't really sell a lot. And Columbia, uh, thankfully, paired him up with producer Phil Ramone, uh, who still who steered Billy Joel in the direction, uh, several directions that he hadn't considered before. And this album became such a success that they were actually, they worked together from this album until 1986. Yeah, this is, that change is the most significant change of all. The production gets better, is able to pull things out of Joel that hadn't been there yet and was able to tie things together that other producers had been unsuccessful at doing with Joel's style. So I would say my familiarity with Mr. Billy Joel mm-hmm. is probably like most music listeners. I think I think I had his greatest hits record at one time, which like you mentioned is one of the best selling records of all time yeah. by any artist. And they were good songs, but I was never, you know, I was never a big fan, just familiar and it wasn't something that I turned off if it was playing, but not something I sought out when I wanted something to listen to. Uh, what I knew most about him back then, uh, when I was getting into music, was that he was married to Christy Brinkley right around the time she was in vacation. And then I saw him in the video for Uptown Girl with her, and I was like, how did that guy get that girl? <laughs> it was all very confusing to me. Um, but I've always been kind of indifferent to his music like that. But this record surprised me, not only because... Uh, it is dense with hits, but because the other songs on the album, with maybe one exception, are equal to the hits in terms of quality and songwriting. Hmm. There's not many misses on here. No, there are not. And I also knew two of the four songs on the album that weren't hits, 
which surprised me a little bit because I'm like, I don't even remember where I would have heard some of this. Yeah. So I guess I knew more than I thought I did. But when you get to be my age, Kyle, uh, you probably end up forgetting more than you remember. I feel like you have forgotten very little, to be totally honest. I, I forgot everything. Yeah. Oh, everything. All right. uh, so, uh, so this was released. This was his fifth studio album mm-hmm. and was released on September 29th, 1977, and would end up having four top 40 hits. Mm-hmm. The album itself would spend six weeks at number two on the Billboard 200 album chart, only kept off top spot by a little album called Saturday Night yes. Fever. I had to look that up because I was like, number two, really? Number two. And it stayed there for that long? What mammoth album kept this? And then I was like, oh, yeah. Saturday Night Fever. It was the late 70s. Disco was in. That makes sense. Uh, it would win two Grammy Awards, mm-hmm. would eventually sell over 10 million copies and become the number one selling record in all of Columbia Records catalog, surpassing A Bridge Over Tro- Troubled Water by Simon and Garfunkel. Rolling Stone magazine named it number 70 on its list the best 500 albums of all time. So I guess it's pretty good. Yeah. And I don't know what they did with the new one. Did you hear that? Rolling Stone just released an updated version of their top 500 albums of all I time. I did not. I'll and there's look 154 that new entries. Wow. Which kind of surprised me. And Pet Sounds is number two still. Ooh. But Sgt. Pepper's, which used to be number one, is now like sixth. And Marvin Gaye's What's Going On is number one now. Wow. But... I think there's like a Taylor Swift album on there, and like I'm like, uh-oh, this list got out of control. <laughs> uh, so, anyway. Yeah. So, uh, what? Go ahead. I was going to say it was also uh, number 246 on Colin Larkin's all-time top 1,000 albums list oh, as well, of 2000. Colin Larkin? Thing. Yeah, which is, you know, he's, he wrote the top 1,000 albums of all time book. Oh, is he the one that the 1,000 albums that you have to listen to before you die or I something like that? I think that's also one of his books, okay. yeah. But uh, I loved this uh, this review. It's, it's claimed that it's a le- slightly less enthusiastic review by uh, uh, Robert Christigau from The Village Voice. Oh, I know Robert Christigau. Yes. Not uh, personally. Speaking specifically of Billy Joel himself, he wrote that the artist had more or less grown up uh, with what he considered less egotistical songwriting and that he's now a likable, excuse me, he's now as likable as your once rebellious and still tolerant uncle who has the quirk of believing that OPEC was designed to ruin his air conditioning business. <laughs> I thought that was a pretty good review. That's actually pretty, uh, that's not bad. I usually don't care for his reviews. Right? But that one's pretty good. I like his little short reviews. Terrible. Loved it. Yeah, once it gets... Skip track four. Once it gets wordy. <laughs> yeah, just cut it out. There is uh, one other person that I need. I think we need to mention before we uh, roll on to the uh, album cover here. Sure. Uh, Richard T., uh, who was one of the musicians who played on this. He's a studio mu- studio musician who played organ on this album, but he has hundreds of credits to his name because he's a studio musician. Mm. Uh, he's worked with this huge list of artists, including Paul Simon, Carly Simon, the Bee Gees, Barbra Streisand, Robert Flack, Aretha Franklin, Diane Schur, Donny Hathaway, Peter Allen, George Harrison, Diana Ross, Dwayne Allman, Quincy Jones, Bill Withers, Art Garfunkel, Nina Simone, Juice Newton, Billy Joel, Etta James, Grover Washington Jr., Eric Clapton, Kenny Loggins, Patty Austin, David Ruffin, Lou Rawls, Ron Carter, Peter Gabriel, George Benson, Joe Cocker, Chuck Mangione, Tim Finn, Peebo Bryson, Mariah Carey, Shaka Khan, Phoebe Snow, Doc Severinsen, Leo Sayer, Herbie Mann, and many, many, many others. Yeah. He is an absolute powerhouse of an organ player, which I know is a weird uh, thing to say. It was, I should say, he's since passed away, obviously. But uh, <laughs> No, that's good. 
It, yeah, he just. Uh, I didn't have that. I didn't have that name anywhere. That's what I was looking for because yeah. I don't think I had that name anywhere in my list. He's one of those people that, uh, for some reason, his name is. It's one of those names that registers in my brain as somebody who's been on a lot of albums. Okay. And played, you know, organ music, which is a weird thing to be known for. But, but you're a you're a fan of organ. I used to listen to a lot of organ music I when I was a kid. I remember I'm that. A weirdo. So you are. That's okay. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, you want to talk about the album cover? We can. Uh, as far as who took the picture, uh, I couldn't find anything out. Oh, really? I, oh, I got a lot. Okay, good. So the cover, uh, in case you've never seen it, is a picture of Billy Joel. Uh, it was shot in a studio. It's a picture of Billy Joel sitting on a twin bed uh, with this really creepy Harlequin mask that he's, that he's looking at. Um, there's some boxing gloves hanging over his shoulder, which is a homage to Billy Joel's old boxing days. Yep. Uh, the photo is taken by Jerry Abramowitz who uh, took a lot of rock and roll photos through the 70s, 80s, and on into the 90s. I think he still does. His website looked pretty up to date when I was looking at it. Mm -hmm. So uh, the back cover, however, has a different picture on it. It's a photo of Billy Joel and his band and their producer eating at a family-style neighborhood Italian restaurant in Hell's Kitchen known as Guido's Restaurant, uh, which was located in the back half of the Supreme Macaroni Pasta Store uh, on the west side of uh, 511 uh, North Avenue. Excuse me, 511 Ninth Avenue, uh, but sadly it's since been demolished. Um, yeah, they're sitting around this crowded table, um, and according to Phil Ramone's autobiography, Making Records, the photo shoot was an impromptu, uh, completely impromptu, and all the members were just wearing whatever clothes they had been wearing to the practice session that day. You're, still, you're talking about the back photo still? Yes. Yeah. Okay. yeah. However, uh, the photo was taken, I'm sorry, the photo was taken by Jim Houghton, uh, who had done photography for brands such as ACDC, Chicago, Ted Nugent, and Cheap Trick, again, among a whole bunch of others. But what I thought was most interesting about this is the same restaurant is very iconic. It's been used uh, in a ton of TV and movies, uh, including Leon the Professional, uh, Mighty Aphrodite, okay. uh, Bright Lights, Big City, mm. um, film-wise, and then hundreds of TV shows have shot there. Okay. It's this completely stereotypical looking Italian restaurant. It has the red and white checkered tablecloths. It has family photos all over the walls. It has this tiny little kitchen where they're cooking way too much food all the time. It's cool. Well, I'm glad you found that because I, I did. I, honestly, I didn't look very hard for it, but, <laughs> but I'm glad you found it. But the you got everything that I was talking about, the, the mask on the pillow, uh, boxing gloves on the wall. He was a golden glove boxer as yeah. a young man. He won 22 of his 24 fights and only quit after having his nose broken during a fight, um, and, see, and uh, seems to be he's hanging the gloves, hanging up the gloves, so to yeah. speak, determined to make a go of this particular life. One thing that vexes me, hmm. uh, he's barefoot on the bed, but still wearing a suit. Yeah. Why? 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 As you do sometimes. Wait, I mean, barefoot wearing a suit? I wear a suit around the house all the time, just barefoot. Oh. You know, okay. full suit. Well, tie. Yeah. Uh, dress shirt, sure. It's nicely pressed cufflinks. That's a good cover. It's yeah. interesting. A little weird, you know. Which I like him. A lot of his covers are weird. Piano Man's cover is really weird. Yeah, he looks dead. Um, <laughs> but that's why he it works. Dead. Uh, this one works too. It's just a little more yeah. symbolic, I guess. But I it think does, it uh, does fit though. Yeah, with the the themes of the song, the stranger. I think that this uh, this cover definitely fits with it. So, uh, are you ready to go? Yeah, let's do it. Track by track. So uh opens up with uh, this absolute banger.
the sad day, hopefully far off in the future, when Billy Joel does pass away, <laughs> I hope to God he goes quietly in his sleep. Because if he has a heart attack, every <laughs> single headline is going to be, Billy Joel, dead from heart attack. <laughs> and everyone's just going to go, oh, God, why? Because you have to. You have to. You would have to do that. Right, and his but, funeral uh, procession will be led by a Cadillac. Cadillac with a dirty bumper. Right, because no nobody was there to polish it. It's a classic Billy Joel song. Yeah, uh, I, I guess we should say "Moving Out." Anthony song is the name of this. I correct. think I skipped that one. Kind uh, of indicative of where he was headed for the next two decades. Yeah, I'm a little confused about the parenthetical in the title. Uh, normally, that when that was used over the years, it was a subtitle because that's what people knew it as. Mm-hmm. For instance, the song "Escape" by R- Rupert Holmes is known as the Pina Colada song. Yeah. Um, with the pina colada part in parentheses, because if someone went to the store, that's how they were able to tell the clerk what they wanted to buy. They didn't know it as escape. So I'm unclear as to why this song has Anthony's song in parentheses, because that's not the part I would remember. I feel like it's backwards. Maybe it would, uh, maybe it originally started out being called Anthony's song. And then he thought, you know what? Let's call him moving out. And they left it there. I guess. Who knows? But it's a, it's Joel's rip on the, on that, or him expressing his outright disgust of people that work two jobs and beat themselves in the ground so, just so they can move up yeah. in the strata of society. And even then, I mean, I feel like he talks about all the, the other people. Anthony wants to move up in society. He wants to work hard and, and make his life better. But at the same time, he describes all these other people, Sergeant O'Leary and his mom, who probably tried to do the same thing. It didn't really go anywhere. Right. You know, they're all stuck in that, you know, same repeating job over and over and over again. Well, the implication is that Sergeant O'Leary works two jobs so he can afford a Cadillac, but ironically, he's so beat up from working two jobs that he can't drive it, Yeah, but he can polish the fenders so he can keep it clean and look at it. And this is, but this is really emblematic of Joel's work. It's, he has a knack for the cinematic and it's written as a narrative, like a lot of his work. And so it's easy to see why his work was turned into a Broadway musical of the same name. Exactly. By the uh, Twilight Thorpe Broadway Dance Company uh, called Moving Out. Mm-hmm. I had all these notes already featuring songs of Billy Joel. Joe opened at the Richard Rogers Theater in New York City on October 24, 2002. Played 1,307 performances before closing in December 2005. Uh, toured the U.S. extensively from 2004 to 2007. Uh, the show transferred to the Apollo Victoria Theater in the West End of London on April 10, 2006 and closed a couple of years later. Mm. Uh, I heard it was amazing. Never saw it. I didn't see it, but I heard it was very good, yes. Being uh, gay and also in entertainment. Surprise, a lot of people that I know uh, love musicals. <laughs> what? Uh, right? Who would have thought? <laughs> Stereotypes exist. Uh, <laughs> but really, like, a lot of people that I know really loved it. So, uh, Do we mention how stereotypical the names he's are in the song? Yeah, that is, you know. Mama Leone. Mama Leone. Sergeant O'Leary. Mr. Cacciatore. Yeah. I know these refer to places, but... Uh, I don't know that he'd be able to do that now, so to you know, yeah. so to speak, kind of stereotyping the people that are trying to move I up. I definitely feel like it was a, a product of its time, where at the time nobody even batted an eye at it, and now no. we kind of look back like, oh, you shouldn't have said that. But uh, according to Joel, Anthony isn't a real person, but it's about every Irish, Polish, and Italian kid trying to make a living in the U.S. Yeah. So that's something to consider, I guess. And apparently, go ahead. Oh, go no, you go ahead. I said, I was going to say, apparently Hackensack, New Jersey was a very attractive place to live in the 1970s. Hmm. Uh, I was unaware of this fact. Yeah, I, uh, it was in New Jersey, so I just kind of... Oh, boy. So it's a... And no more listeners in New Jersey. I'm not saying anything bad about it. I just didn't know Hackensack <laughs> was nice. Yeah, I guess that's true. 
But uh, I do think it was pretty funny that he initially wrote the song's lyrics to the tune of the song uh, Laughter in the Rain by Neil Sedaka uh, without even realizing it until uh, Liberty DeVito pointed it out. And he didn't want to waste the lyrics, so he rewrote the whole song. Wow. And I feel like this is another one of those instances where he probably rewrote the whole song in a day or two. Oh, I and would imagine. it's another one of those, you know, oh, yeah. this huge hit was written quickly and under some pressure to like, oh, we got to get back in the studio and record this. Yeah, I would imagine so. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's a good song. Yeah. Fairly successful one. Reached yeah. number 17 on the Billboard 100. Uh, it's got the sax, which I'm not a huge fan of, but it works in this style of music. This, yeah. This this type of music, it's very successful. It definitely doesn't feel shoehorned in here. No. And I know it was a fairly prevalent instrument of choice in the mid to late 1970s mm. and even early 80s. At the end, that uh, car that you hear start up and burn out is uh, uh, Doug's, uh, Doug Stegmeyer, the bass player's 1960s Corvette. Mm -hmm. uh, and apparently that's cut out of the radio version. I could do without it. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just there. But uh, seems a little hacky. Yeah. But that's Anthony moving out. Oh, boy. He burns a And the ack, 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 as we referenced, has been sampled quite a bit over the years. Hmm. Kanye West sampled it. Oh. Uh, Weezer sampled it. You know, very successful. It's a good song. It it's is. Very, Billy very, very Billy Joel. Definitely. Very Billy Joel. Yeah. What do you got? The Stranger? Uh, Stranger. <clears throat> the title song is up next, and it opens with some whistling. Does it? It does. I didn't get a clip of that, oh, but it didn't? opens with some whistling. It's uh it's a very <laughs> right. we we I got Randy so ready to push the button and I don't have a clip of the whistling. Uh, so. You confused him. Uh, yeah, sorry Randy. I assume that's Billy Joel uh, whistling what is essentially the melody to the song. It is. Yeah. And in fact, Billy Joel in an interview uh, in 2008 for USA Today said, uh, after recording the song, I remember thinking, it needs some sort of introduction. It needs a prelude or a theme, and then it should slam into the song. And I played the theme on the piano to show Phil, Phil Ramone, the producer, uh, and whistled along with it. And he said, what instrument, do, or I, and I said, what instrument do you think uh, should do that? And Phil said, you just did it. I heard it played back and I went, that's kind of cool. I like that. It was really the theme to the album because it was born in the studio during the process and it just kind of captured the mood. So he literally, yeah. they had the song recorded and then he was like, this is what we should do. You know, what instrument do you think? And then Phil Ramone was like, originally wanted a wind instrument, probably yeah. a sax knowing this lineup. Yeah. But, I could see this being a sax. But too. they left it as a lone whistle to try to, you know, evoke the feelings of a stranger. Mm -hmm. It's very noir. Yes, at it least is. that part. That part is very noir. I could this very black and white old fifties type detective movie. Yeah, um, that part. But then the majority of the song veers terribly close to sounding like disco. Yes, the rhythm of the song and the open close sound of the hi hat definitely shifts towards that disco feel. Agreed. It's, and it's very dated. Very nineteen seventy seven. Very nineteen seventy seven. And also there's a change that happens mid song that makes it sound right there like Steely Dan. This jazz chords, it has this this very big shift and it's mixed very dry. Very yeah. little reverb. So it ha it kind of just evokes the Steely Dan feel, which would have it would make sense in 1977. That is one thing about Billy Joel. He definitely listens to a lot of other artists and incorporates parts of their sound into his music. Mm -hmm. And like, I didn't, I had heard, I saw that in a couple of like forums. People were like, this is like the Steely Dan sound. 
And I couldn't find anywhere where Billy Joel straight up said, oh, I was influenced by Steely Dan to do this part of the song. Right. And I was hoping I would, because there's other parts, there's other songs where I've noted that he straight up says, I was influenced by this sound from this song. Hmm. Like there's a part where he says, I was influenced by uh, I'm Not in Love by 10CC for, uh, I forget which song. It, uh, it's uh, actually the next one, Just yep. the Way You Are. We'll get to that in a second. There's also, uh, I'm going to circle back to this song at the end of the recording here. Okay. Because uh, there's something I want to talk about with this song. Okay. But we'll, we'll, we'll get there. Lyrically, I feel like it's one of his best, though. Yeah. Uh, the tone of it is pretty dark and in- introspective. It's an acknowledgement that we all have a lot of secrets and sides to our personalities, and the person that you're with hasn't necessarily seen them all. Yeah. And quite possibly, you yourself might not be aware of all of them. So don't be too surprised when they show themselves. Yeah. Uh, but there's some encouragement there as well. Don't be afraid to try again. Because it's not always evil or wrong to let those other sides come out. And that's that's a fairly effective sentiment, I would say. Yeah. And because so many of his songs are narrative stories, mm-hmm. like moving out, like songs further on this record, that this one is very standalone for me, that it's that it it's almost works more like a like a piece of poetry as opposed to a cinematic narrative like he is kind of known for. Yeah. He says this, he said this about several different songs, but a lot of his more serious and I don't want to say depressing, but uh, uh, darker songs mm-hmm. um, definitely reference. He he had a suicide attempt in 1971 right. where he drank furniture polish yeah. to try to I've kill himself. I've heard multiple stories. I've heard Windex or yeah. bleach or furniture polish, whatever. The, the quote from him was that it was furniture polish and he chose that because he thought it would taste better than bleach. Hmm. Uh, and thankfully, uh, lemony. Yeah, he was saved. Uh, one of his band members at the time found him. They took him to a hospital, and he was okay. Uh, but a lot of the darker stuff that he talks about in his songs came from that experience, I think. Hmm. Uh, and there's also in this song uh, the idea of people wearing different masks comes up a lot. Have you ever heard of uh, uh, masking, the psychological uh, concept? I'm not sure. Uh, so masking, it's a process in which an individual changes or masks their natural personality to conform to social pressures, abuse, uh, and or harassment. Mm. Uh, some examples of masking are in a single overly dominant temperament, two incongruent temperaments, or displaying three or four uh, main temperaments within the same individual. Oh, wow. Uh, masking can be strongly influenced by envir- environmental factors such as authoritarian parents, rejection, and emotional, physical, or sexual abuse. Um, an individual may not even know that they're masking because it is behavior that can make uh, that can take many forms. The term masking was first used to describe the act of concealing disgust by psychologists Ankman and Friesen in 1972 and 1969, respectively. Wow. But uh, I had heard of this term before. Yeah, I, I would say I, I don't know. I didn't know that it had a official, official diagnosis yeah. type, but... But yeah, it's uh, it's definitely I think that he's directly talking about that, though, in hmm. this song, the idea that, you know, people can hide their emotions behind a mask uh, because they've been, you know, keeping secrets or being abused or uh, uh, whatever. Hmm. What have you? The song was released as a single in Japan mm-hmm. and did extremely well. Yes, it got it to number two on their charts, sold almost a half a million copies over there, which I wow. would say is fairly significant. Yeah. In these small islands. He did sell uh, 350,000 copies of this whole album over there as well. That's pretty good. Yeah. It's not an insignificant number for a country of 100 million people. Right. Matthew. Are you going to say it? I like you just the way that you are. I thought you were going to say that. Yeah, you knew I was setting that one up. Yeah, I did because I was going to do the same thing to you. Yeah, I was uh, thinking about it for like 10 minutes. 
Uh, this is gonna be funny <laughs> but you thought of it too and now i feel like a hack yeah so. undoubtedly one of the best known and loved billy joel songs mm-hmm. although he and his bandmates really didn't like this song at all he thought it was a gloppy ballad uh his preference was to leave it off the album mm-hmm. it was convinced by linda rodstan mm-hmm. her name appears again on our show your time is coming linda rodstan <laughs> <laughs> and phoebe snow mm-hmm. to leave it on the record and it's a good choice yeah it would become Joel's first top 10 hit, topping out at number three, although it would top the easy listening, now known as Beautiful Music, chart for Ugh. several weeks. Beautiful Music. Just saying. Won the Grammy for Song of the Year and Record of the Year for 1979, question mark, two years after it was released? Yeah. I'm still not sure how the Grammy's timing works. Yeah, that's kind of weird. I, my assumption is because the Grammys happen in the middle of the year, right? Yeah, I believe they, so. They just happened. Yeah, like August, right? September, early September. No, 8th with this whole COVID thing, I don't really. I don't know, I don't know what day of the week it is. I don't know when they um, happen. I think that what happens is they cover up until like May of a certain year, and then they have it in three months after that. So June, July, August. So September-ish. if he released this album in September of ninety, or September of seventy-seven. And uh, then it should have been seventy-eight, right? That's seventy-nine. A, that's why I don't get the timing. I think they just manufacture that. Was it maybe a, a skipped year, or was the single released really late? That's the only thing that I could mm. consider, is that maybe maybe the single was released in 78, so therefore it's reflected in the Grammys of 79. I don't know. Uh, weird. Anyway, it has this super awesome, washed-out Fender Rhodes electric yeah. piano that dates it to that time period, but doesn't make it any less beautiful. But it definitely puts a year on it. Yeah. He wrote this song about his first wife, Elizabeth. And it would become a staple of his live show until they got divorced in Mm. 1982. Uh, That gave him the opportunity to shelve it for almost 20 years. (laughs) And the uh, the song has a classic sax solo. Uh, Even though I hate the sax, this is where it actually works. Uh, It was placed uh, played by jazz musician and Grammy winner Phil Woods, who took a lot of flack back in the day for playing on a quote rock and roll record. There have been a number of covers over the years, uh, including Harry Connick Jr., Willie Nelson, Barry White, and pretty notably, uh, a guy that I think everyone wanted covering their songs, uh, Mr. Frank Sinatra. Oh, yeah. I'm sure it's it's done in that Sinatra style, you know, really casual, like he's speaking off the cuff kind of thing. He was cool. Yeah. Sinatra was cool. Picture cool. We'll it was to, very we'll cool. We'll have to do a Frank Sinatra album sometime. Absolutely. Too. Speaking of them getting divorced... Uh, in the early 80s when they were splitting up, he was still playing the song for a little while before he knocked it out of his set list. And uh, Liberty DeVito, the drummer, used to parody the lyrics in the chorus as uh, she got the house, she got the car. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. That is funny. Uh, and also, uh, so probably got everything. Yeah. He's been through it a few times. Yeah. I don't know. I'm surprised he has anything left. There's a lot of inspiration in this song, too. So apparently, in some interviews, Billy Joel has said that the melody for this song came to him in a dream, and he woke up to try to write it down, and he forgot it. And a couple weeks later, he was in some business meeting or something, and all of a sudden, popped right back into his head, and he was like, ah! And he grabbed a piece of paper <laughs> and started writing it down as quickly as he could, so that it, he that's how the melody supposedly came into being. Um Also, in an interview on Howard Stern uh, in November of 2010, Billy Joel revealed that the inspiration for writing, excuse me, the inspiration for writing the song and how it sounds in the chorus was directly taken, sorry, God, I can't read, 
The inspiration for the name of the song and how it sounds in the chorus was directly taken from the last line of the Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons song, Ragdoll, which also inspired Uptown Girl, one of his later hits. Mm-hmm. It also, and we mentioned this a little bit before, uh, prominently features the washed-out tones of a Fender Rhodes keyboard, uh, overdubbed vocals inspired by 10CC's 1975 song, I'm Not In Love. Mm-hmm. Uh, producer Phil Ramone later revealed in an interview that Joel and him were fans of the song and sought to create the sound and aura for this song. Hmm. So again, directly taking stuff that other people had done and not copying it, but... No, he's using it as inspiration. Exactly. Yeah, it, it borrows sounds, but not necessarily melodies. And I think that's completely different. Yeah. I personally have great affection for this song. One of my top two favorite of favorites of uh, Billy Joel's. I've used it in videos over the years as one of the highlights of the graduation video I made for one of my sons a few years ago. So it's a very special song. I love this song. It is uh, one of those songs that shows up on a lot of wedding videos yeah. too. It's a, it's a beautiful song. Especially when it's like supposed to be the uh, the woman singing about an ugly guy, <laughs> like some beautiful woman is marrying a really hideous. I, I like you just the way and you his, are. All his pictures are like I just uh, to this song, and then all hers are like fun, like upbeat songs. <laughs> and there's just this depressing part in the middle where it's him holding up like a beer, and it's him bowling and stuff, and everybody's like, oh, oh, well, she loves him just yeah. the way he is. Oh, that's oh. so sweet. It's a beautiful song. I love it, but it, n- unlike. How much Kyle loves the next song. Oh, God. Okay. Scenes from an Italian restaurant. Let's get this out here up front. I am not a fan of the song Scenes from an Italian restaurant. Kyle can't stand it. I've been waiting. I've been waiting for this. I've been waiting. Let me have it, Kyle. Okay. Apparently, I can't stand it, and I want to stab my eyes out when I listen to it. You do. Plug my ears, stab my eyes out. Uh, Again, this is another one of those uh, instances on a podcast where I feel like I'm going to get beat in the coming weeks. Uh, because somebody's going to be like, you don't like scenes from an Italian restaurant? Get him, boys! And I'm just going to get beat up. Uh, last time uh, on a previous podcast. How did that you had, know that that's how my gang talks? I just had a guess. That's how we all. Uh, on, on a previous podcast that Matthew and I were a part of, uh, I happened to mention that I don't care for the film E.T. That's it. I'm done. And uh, Matthew's taken off his headset and has left the the recording studio. I happened to mention that I don't care for the film E.T. And... Uh, the next the next week at work after that episode was released, uh, several people got very upset with me. Yes, uh, got, you don't like ET. What's wrong with you? How can you not like ET? It's a wonderful film. I'm still upset with you, and I let you in my house every two weeks. I know, I know. It's crazy. Again, it, it, realistically, though, uh, this song I, it's not a bad song. If you like it, that is fine. <clears throat> I do not personally care for it. Don't just own it. Just hate it. I don't hate it though. Just own it. That's just it. It's not something that I'm like, ooh, and I change it every time it comes on. I think you I'm do. just like, meh. I just it, uh, it, it would be very low on my Billy Joel rankings list. That's too bad. I just think it's one of those songs that is the perfect marriage of lyrics to music. Hmm. Uh, the way that it's styled, it's got really upbeat, jazzy composition to the way it's delivered, to the way the three parts of the song are strung together. Like I mentioned before. Joel can be cinematic, and this song is like a mini movie. I will say that as well. It's, it is it is very much a scene-by-scene scene miniature film. Seven and a half minutes long. It's long enough to get all those parts in, the setup, the emotional middle and climax, and then the re- resolution. And me, being such a big fan of progressive music and things that are structured more like classical music, I love that this is a suite of songs. 
Apparently, Joel tried to style it after the second side of the Beatles' Abbey Road, because he loves it. And he loves this song, and it's a staple of all of his concerts. Yeah. There's and, a Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, a lot of times, too, when he wasn't playing this in concert, uh, he would usually have a part in the middle of the show where he would say, okay, I can play whatever super hit I have, or scenes from an Italian restaurant by show of applause, you know, and scenes from an Italian restaurant would win like nine times out of 10. Always wins. Uh, there's a part in the song that is straight Dixieland jazz. And it, it reminds me of being in New Orleans, a city I have great love for. It's like being transported onto a steamboat, trolling down the Mississippi with Dixie band swinging on the deck. It's a perfect visual. It just sounds so great. I love it. And one of the other reasons I love this song is because we used to play this in high school. Uh, it wasn't a song that was on our teacher's playlist, but a number of us in the band liked it, so we all decided to learn it and rehearse it on our own, the vocals being played as another piano melody. We had two piano players. So we worked on it for weeks, finally unveiled it at one of the many awards banquets we played at at the notorious Ukrainian Cultural Center. If anyone is listening from Southeast Michigan, you'll know what I'm talking about. The chicken Kiev and the green beans almondine were to die for. Ooh. Uh, skip the kibasa, though. It was always really dry. Um, but we didn't tell the teacher. We just started playing it when we finished our set and played it for the next seven minutes. It's one of the highlights <laughs> of my high school experience by far. because It was fantastic because we worked for months to, to figure this out. And honestly, don't we all know a Brenda and Eddie? Uh, yes. I know several of them. We all know a Brenda and Eddie that we're like, there's no way in hell those two are ever breaking up. They're going to be together forever. And then all the shit hits the fan and then like, oh, they're divorced. It's like, yeah. what? Although a lot of these couples from songs, everybody knows the Jack and Diane, right? Yes. I mean. Is that a bad song? No, it's a great song. Okay, then. But uh, <laughs> I'm not saying. Oh, God. You did. You said, this is a bad song. And then you punched me. And I don't appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> then I ran over your dog with a car and burned your house down. Yeah. I don't know why you have to take it so far, uh, yeah, Kyle. you know, I just, I can't, I can't help it. I got to stand up for what I believe in. That's right. You don't like this one, but you know what? Vienna Hold waits on, for you. What? Do you know which Italian restaurant it probably was? Uh, I had it written down, but I think I crossed it out. Was it, it Guido's? No, that is the restaurant from the picture on the back of the uh, album. This is probably- Mama Leone's? Uh, Fontana de Trevi, Ooh. or the Trevi Fountain, which used to be across the street from Carnegie Hall. Uh, New York. However, it was sadly torn down to make way for some crappy luxury apartments. Uh, but this is a pretty good quote. Uh, in a video interview, Billy Joel said, there's a restaurant right across the street from Carnegie Hall. It's not there anymore called Fontana de Trevi. Uh, but sometimes you'd have a hard time getting a table and the owner of the restaurant sees this line going around the block. And there's a poster of me in front of Carnegie Hall. And he was looking at the poster and he looks at me and he goes, hey, you're a data guy. <laughs> And from then on, I was always able to get a good spot. Uh, people wonder where scenes from an Italian restaurant was. Well, there was the place. <laughs> That's literally the question. Hey, you're a data guy. <laughs> mm. 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 It's okay. I guess. Fine. So you're not a huge fan of that song. However, you flip over to the B-side in the opener. One of my favorite Billy Joel songs. Does Vienna time. wait for you, Kyle? Vienna waits for me. It's also a favorite of Joel's, just like the last song. Yes. Apparently, it's one of his top two of his own catalog. And it's very much a song about living your life and seems to be directed at himself uh, about making sure you take time and enjoy the things you have before they're gone. Yeah. And he uses Vienna as a metaphor for life and its occasional crossroads. 
So because of Vienna's location, it's a melting pot for all kinds of cultures and lifestyles, so it seemed like a fitting metaphor for a song about that. However, there was another reason for using Vienna that was much more personal. As Kyle mentioned earlier, his father was born in Nuremberg and uh, was Jewish, and they fled the Nazis, lived in Switzerland. Eventually, Joel's parents divorced in 1957, and his father would move back to Europe because he felt that Americans were, quote, too materialistic and uncivilized. Hmm. Well, uh, hmm. well, that's pretty spot on. Yeah. Many years later, Joel would travel to Vienna to visit his father and had this experience as he tells it. So I go to visit my father in Vienna. I'm walking around this town and I see this old lady. She must have been about 90 years old and she's sweeping the street. And I say to my father, what's this nice old lady doing sweeping the street? And he says, she's got a job. She feels useful. She's happy. She's making the street clean. She's not put out to pasture. We treat old people in this country pretty badly. We put them in rest homes. We kind of kick them under the rug and make them believe they don't exist. They, the people in Vienna, don't feel like that. A lot of these older places in the world, they value their older people, and their older people feel they can still be part of the community. And I thought, this is a terrific idea, that old people are useful, and that means I don't have to worry so much about getting old because I can still have a use in this world in my old age. I thought, Vienna waits for you. And that is one of those things, I did not know that quote until I started researching this album. I already loved this song. Yeah. And then when I started researching this album and I read that quote, I was like, wow, that makes me like this even more. Mm. I don't know what it is. It's just a, it's a wonderful kind of slow song. It has a little bit of that whimsy in it. Uh, and one of my favorite parts is uh, right here. Ooh, when will you realize Vienna waits for you? Take the phone off the hook and disappear for a while It's all right, you can't afford to lose a day or two Ooh, when will you realize Vienna waits for you That's uh, Dominic Cortese on uh, accordion there oh. another, another famous session musician He has several albums of his own that's just accordion music from the 50s, 60s, early 70s. But uh, he also, another artist who just, pretty much any time you heard an accordion in that era on like a, a not polka album, it was him. <laughs> on a not polka album, it, it was him. Uh, yeah, amazing, amazing musician. But musically, uh, also a great song. Musically, I guess there's something about Billy Joel that makes me feel like I'm uh, listening to a lounge singer of some kind. Though Randy yes. and I talked about this. This song is beautiful and evocative, but man, like a lot of songs on this record, they, they feel a little dated. Mm. Uh, the sound of it just makes me feel like I walked into a hotel on an episode of like Three's Company or something. You turn a corner and you're like walking in on somebody singing. It's so specifically a time and place. Uh, on one of our earlier episodes, we covered Boston's first record. And we talked about the thing that makes me go back to that record year after year is the fact that it could be dropped into any rock era after it was released and sound interesting and new, and it's timeless. And there are records that have a quality that allow them to fit in, and this, to me, is not one of them. 
Um, and that's probably the thing that prevents me from actively seeking Billy Joel out. I don't ever sit down on my patio to listen to music and say, man, I need to listen to some Billy Joel right now, like I do with Bob Seger or something. Yeah. Like a lot of his songs, there are numerous cover versions of this song, and it's been used in a ton of movies and stuff. It's still a beautiful song. Yeah. It's just, it has a very specific place. I agree. And it's definitely, a, I kind of feel like Billy Joel definitely wrote music for the time that he was in. Like all of his albums are definitely of the era where he was writing them. They were definitely influenced by the pop culture of the time and the music of the time. And I, I would 100% agree with that. They fit within that time frame. So they're not something that you can listen to and be like, oh, yeah, this would totally fit today. It's of its era. So interesting, something that I don't have in my notes at all. But what you just said there, you think that might be a reason why he hasn't released an album in 20 years? Possibly. Because he just doesn't feel like any of the things that he could write fit into the time. Well, I know that one of the reasons he has stated for not releasing any new albums is he doesn't want to do other people's music on a big scale, you know, as like record an album of other people's songs. And he got so frustrated with songwriting and it was affecting his family life and it was affecting his personal life. And he was stressed out all the time. And he just said, look, I'm going to stop doing that. I have tons of money. I can, I'm just going to tour for a while and see what happens. And playing his old songs was so successful. I mean, he's, he's sold out, you know, hundreds of arenas the world over. So isn't he essentially just the world's most popular lounge singer then pretty much because yeah. if he is just playing his just own, playing the hits just playing the hits then he is you know at madison square garden for 12 nights in a row yeah the world's most popular lounge I, singer i would say yes All i right. think that he is probably the world's most popular lounge singer okay That's fair a, enough never never thought about it until just now but yeah you're probably right all right. Well, only the good die young. Kyle. They do. And guess what? It's a you can't fuck song because you're a Catholic. <laughs> bam, 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 bam. That's what I wrote. That's the fuck song of the album, or at least it wants to be. Yes. It's the controversial anti-Catholic pop tune of the album. Mm -hmm. The song, which is about a bad boy trying to deflower a Catholic girl named Virginia. It was banned on, by many radio stations, Should which in today's day and age is totally laughable. Yeah. Did you know that Virginia is a, a real person? I did. Virginia Callahan, who Billy Joel went to high school with? <laughs> this song was banned. <laughs> Not one swear word. No allusions to anyone's private parts. No cunning linguists at play here. <laughs> Just some slight innuendo to a Catholic girl who doesn't want to give it up before marriage. What a horror. <laughs> horror, not whore. Horror. horror. Uh, Billy Joel has said about this song that it isn't so much anti-Catholic as much as it is pro-lust. <laughs> I had that quote written down. I guess, like you said, it's about one of his ex-girlfriends. He also said the minute that it uh, started getting banned, it shot right up the charts. Well, duh. Yeah. Isn't that how it works? <laughs> hey, everybody, whatever you do, do not go see this movie. Well, shit, now I guess I have to go see it and find out what all the hubbub is about. <laughs> Hello, Prince's career. That's he did... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Billy Joel also pointed out in an interview, he said that one thing all the critics seem to have missed about this song is that the uh, the boy, the protagonist, not successful. Right, he didn't win. Did, didn't get it. Didn't nope. get the uh, didn't get the rosary beads pulled off. Right, she stayed a virgin. Yep, she held on to it. It's for sure one of the uh, most fun songs on the record. Very oh, yeah. catchy and poppy, a and the beat. drums on this song, courtesy of Liberty DeVito, are 
first rate. Yeah. Originally, it was supposed to be a reggae beat. Yeah. And he changed it to a shuffle. It makes all the difference in the world. But at Liberty DeVito's insistence, right? Because yeah. this, this is the song where Liberty DeVito literally threw his drumsticks at him. And he's like, don't do that. <laughs> he was trying to sing. I guess he tried to, not only was it a reggae beat, he was trying to sing with a Jamaican accent. And Liberty <laughs> DeVito threw his drumsticks at the back of his head and said, don't do that. It sounds horrible. I'll leave it to drummers. That's what we're supposed to do. <laughs> I do remember seeing Joel perform a version of this song on Saturday Night Live way, way back in the day. And it seems like if I can remember it all these years later, it must have been pretty good. Yeah. It's a good tune. Yeah. She's always a woman. She is indeed always uh, a no, woman. Another song written for uh, Elizabeth Weber, uh, Joel's then wife. It's one of my favorites of his, again, exquisite yeah. song. Um, Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say that uh, she had just taken over management of Billy Joel's career. And she was able to put his financial affairs in order uh, after he had signed some bad contracts and things. But a lot of people in the industry were really afraid of her because they said that she's she was a very savvy negotiator. Uh, she, you know, like the lyrics said, she could wound with her eyes, she could steal like a thief, but she'd never give in. Um, but because of her tough as nails negotiating style, many business adversaries thought she was unfeminine. Uh, but Joel said she's always a woman, right? As you know, Kyle, mm. my wife is an executive of very large international bank. Yes. Uh, and I've listened in on calls and meetings. Uh, what, was pre what was prevalent back then with what they're saying about Elizabeth has not gone away. Hmm. And why is it that when she comes into a meeting with ideas and tough points of view and strong opinions, she's considered a bitch and hormonal and iron lady. She's too tough. But if a man comes in the same way, he's strong and a good yeah. leader. And that double standard has never gone away. And it's an ugly indictment of our society and how far we still have to go. I can tell you the best managers I have ever had in any industry I've ever worked in have always been strong, capable women. And guys are typically so singular focused that they aren't usually able to see the big picture. And that's just how it is. I'm sorry. It just is. But this song is just wonderful lyrical expression of his respect for a strong woman. There is a part of the song that always bothered me until I realized what he was actually saying. Hmm. Uh, the line, she takes care of herself, always rubbed me the wrong way because for some reason the way I heard it was more of a, okay, well, she dresses nice and she's put together and she showers. Why does that matter? But I was hearing it wrong all these years. The intention behind that idea is she's able to provide for herself. She doesn't need a man to take care of her. She's very much her own person. Like the last line says, she's ahead of her time. Yeah. And when I hear that now, it makes the song even better. She can lead you to love, she can take you or leave you She can ask for the truth, but she'll never believe And she'll take what you give her as long as it's free Yeah, she steals like a thief, but she's always a woman to me Oh, she takes care of herself can wait if she wants She's ahead of her time Oh, and she never gives out And she never gives in She just changes her mind So this was a staple, a staple of Billy Joel's concerts Until? Until they got divorced <laughs> Uh, from basically 1980, 81 until 2005, he played it very sporadically in concert. 
And at one concert, uh, he was asked about it by a fan, uh, and he said that it was about his first wife, who he didn't really want to be singing about in the first place. He explained that while he was singing it, he would start thinking about what meal he would be eating after the show, <laughs> <laughs> and he just had no passion for this song whatsoever, so he dropped it. Until 2006, when he returned the song to his live repertoire, but often deadpanning at the end, and then we got divorced. <laughs> That's I have the exact same quote. That's perfect. <laughs> Uh, he also said that this was uh, musically inspired by Gordon Lightfoot and his Whoa. light acoustic guitars. Ah. So, again. Hmm. Back of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Right? Another uh, more influences. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Get it right the first time, Matthew. All right. Well, I sorry. We could start over. No, that's the song. Oh. The next song that's up on here. Oh. This is one of the two songs that I, uh, I don't think I had heard until I sat down hmm. to do the research for the record. It's a great song. Yeah. Clearly a song about not getting second chances to make impressions on a girl he's trying to date. Yeah. But musically, one of the highlights on the record for me. I love it. And it's strange that I've never heard it. But yeah. There's some great guitar work on here. Three separate guitarists. Uh, Hiram Bullock, Steve Kahn, and Hugh McCracken. That last name, as awesome as it is. Maybe not well known to most people, but I guarantee you had heard him before. Uh, he played with a laundry list of artists over the course of five decades including John Lennon, Bob Dylan, but where people have most assuredly heard his work are the songs All By Myself by Eric Carmen, the slide guitar solo in Hey 19 by Steely Dan, and the guitar solo in Van Morrison's classic Brown Eyed Girl. Ooh. So, also a fun little connection for him. He was born in Hackensack, New Jersey. Hey! As this album comes full circle. <laughs> but I do think, my opinion is, I think this sounds exactly like a 70s or 80s like a uh, sitcom theme song. Absolutely. Uh, 100%. Which I started thinking like, I wonder if this was, I wonder if that's why, cause I knew I had heard it somewhere before. Well, I know he had a theme song for bosom buddies yeah, it's called my life. Yeah. It's a great song. Yeah. Uh, and so I started thinking I, that's what led me down that path, but it is not. Oh, so that's sad. Everybody has a dream. Is this borderline gospel? It is very close. I think I, you might even call this gospel music. What is this song doing here? I don't know. Lyrically, it is wonderful. It's mm -hmm. just great. Obviously, another song about or to his then wife, uh, realizing his dream is just to be with her at home all alone. Like, great feeling to have, even if it clearly didn't last for him or her. But uh, musically, it seems so starkly out of place on this record. Yeah. There's might be a reason for that though. Go ahead. He wrote this in 1971. Mm, so is he just trying to jam it on there? It could be. It could be a filler. I don't think it is. I think that it just happened to be that he thought it was going to fit. And I feel like this is another one of those songs that probably changed a lot when they were recording it. It's possible. We've had many discussions about pacing and putting an album together. And I feel like if you really wanted to include this song on the record, then he could have closed side one with it. And moved scenes from an Italian restaurant to the end of the record. Mm. I feel like that's the taste you want in everyone's mouth when the record is over. Just, this isn't my yeah. favorite way to end it, and that's too bad. That would have been interesting. Right? Interesting I, change. I do like playing with pacing and stuff like that, just to see. Shuffle them around and see what... But I do also kind of think the opening of this album. I'm surprised The Stranger wasn't first with that whistling intro. You know what I mean? Right, because like, they also he, they close out they the bookend album with it that. with yeah. this song with the same whistle. And there's uh, 
there's the instrumental reprise of The Stranger, sometimes mm-hmm. called the untitled track at the end of this album. Mm-hmm. Depending upon which version you have, this may be a separate track. I believe it's the original CD release split that out into a separate track. Mm-hmm. Um, but then since then, it's always been included with it as part of one whole song. So who knows? I know you got more on this record, so. There's one, well, two other things I should probably mention. So yeah, first of do. all, a uh, fantastic resource that I used was a website uh, called uh, popspotnyc.com forward slash Billy underscore underscore Joel underscore the underscore stranger. You should probably put that in the show notes. I will notes. put that in the show notes. I actually wrote it down on here, so, so I won't forget to put it in the show notes this time. I apologize to everyone who's looked for show notes in the past that uh, they're not there because I am I forget about it and but Kyle lose said all my he'd notes. do it. So hopefully you're pretty good with Google and you can actually search for stuff. That website, however, uh, was where I got all the information about the cover photos for this ah. album. And the guy or girl who wrote it absolutely breaks it down. They have tons of photos of the inside of Guido's restaurant before it was torn down. They talk about uh, uh, Fontana de Trevi, and there's pictures of it. They went to that site in New York City where both of those restaurants used to be and took pictures and compared them. They have all kinds of comparisons of like, hey, here's what the inside of this restaurant looked like before it was torn down, and here's where Billy Joel was sitting, and here's what it would look like if he was sitting in the modern restaurant. And It is crazy the amount of detail this person went into. But huge resource and huge shout out to whoever made that website. So the last thing I've got to mention about this album. Yes. So when we were talking about this, we got talking about this when we were recording our last episode. And I said, you know what I think? I have a theory that The Stranger uh, was written as like a theme song. Like specifically, it feels a lot like a James Bond theme song. Okay. And you and Randy laughed and laughed. I'm still laughing. Ha 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 ha. Kyle's so stupid. I I still think it's hilarious. This is all circumstantial evidence here, but uh, I think there might be a little bit to this. So uh, first of all, uh, there's this clip that I found from uh, Billy Joel. He was recording this thing for a project called uh, The Art of McCartney. Uh, and they did an interview with him because he recorded covers of uh, uh, Live and Let Die, which, uh, of course, was the theme song to the 1973 James Bond film uh, Live and Let Die, which came out four years before The Stranger did, by the way, uh, written by Paul McCartney with lyrics by Linda McCartney. So here's that clip. When I first heard Live and Let Die, I thought it was one of the coolest James Bond songs that I'd ever heard. I remember these uh, these old James Bond songs like Gold for Goldfinger. It was all um, kind of Hollywood music, although a few of them were, were pretty good. The ones by John Barry were, were, were pretty good. But Living Let Die, I mean, Paul stepped up to the plate and he knocked it out of the park. I love the song. It was it's kind of a whacked song. We used to do it at Soundcheck. Matter of fact, we still do it at Soundcheck. It's just fun to play. Just because it's just kind of so over the top. So in there, not only does he talk about how he loves the theme song to Live and Let Die, yep. they play it uh, as a warm-up song when they're out on tour. Okay. So it was in his head, and he said that he'd been playing it for a long time. So maybe since the early 70s. So that was already in his head hmm. uh, when he was writing The Stranger. Again, circumstantial. All right. But uh, I see where you're headed. I'm not saying that it's out of out of, you know, left field here. It's uh, I, I see where like you're it's... going. It just doesn't sound like a, a Bond theme. To oh, me. man. Are you kidding me? It just doesn't. It's uh, no. listen to live and let die and then listen to the stranger back to back here. OK, here's a little clip of Billy Joel's cover 
All right. Of Live and Let Die. Okay. When you were young and your heart was an open book, you used to say, Live and let live. But if this ever changing world in which we live in makes you give in and cry, say, Live and let die. Again, okay. circ- circumstantial, but he, we now know that he for sure had heard Live and Let Die when he was creating The Stranger. And I think that, again, what have we talked about through this whole thing? All the people that influenced him, all the pop culture that was influencing him, all the L.A. and New York scenes that yeah, influenced yeah, yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, I'll give it to you. I, there's some influence there. There has to be some influence there. All right. Now, again, no direct evidence for me to say that this was written as a Bond theme. I feel like it's a Bond. I'll let you have it. I could see this being, you know how Bond movies always have that sort of uh, opening scene, and then it cuts to the credits, and there's the funky scene. Imagine at the end, uh, James Bond kills somebody, shoots Blofeld in the head or something, and then he says some swarthy line like, looks like that'll leave a hole you can whistle through, and then into the Billy Joel whistling. (laughs) And then, boom, right into this weird, funky colors and you know uh, you've given naked a lot of women thought dancing and gun barrels <laughs> oh that is true right all right because it's 1977 yes yes all right i'm with you yeah all right i'll give it to you i'm just saying i just uh i felt like i had to address this all right and it just so happened that i stumbled on that clip you gave it a lot of thought i did give it a lot of thought well i reward you that was very good thank you i i will not uh i will think of it differently now <laughs> <laughs> I changed someone's mind. You did. Congratulations. One mind at a time. So there it is. That's The Stranger. And Billy Joel's The Stranger. It's a great record. And it definitely deserves another listen all these years later, even if it's a little dated by its sound. Yeah. Uh, he was a product of his times and still remains one of the greatest songwriters in music history. Oh, yeah. So give it a listen. Let us know what you think. You and, uh, get, go ahead. I would say if you've been sitting on your hand through this whole podcast, oh, you man, can take bad. it out now. Uh, I'm sorry if it is totally dead and, and, and blue, rotten blue. now, blue. Uh, please uh, see a doctor if it has started to uh, go necrotic. Oh, boy. Uh, I hope that you uh, didn't do that. Uh, let us know what you think uh, and tell us uh, if we're doing a good job at info at audiojudo.com. Uh, hey, everyone, we have many episodes. Yes. Uh, we have several now about uh, artists ranging from Raymond Scott to Gary Newman to Michael Hedges. Uh, these episodes range from 10 to 15 minutes. And our short synopsis of artists instead of an in-depth dive. Uh, these are only available currently through our Patreon account. Uh, access to these are available to you for $3 a month. And the other tiers have many more extras, anywhere from $7 to $20 a month. Yeah, And uh, at the $20 tier, if you subscribe for a full year, you get to record an episode with us. Right. Might probably remotely. We're not going to pay to fly you out here. No, you're like going to have to do it over the phone, probably. Uh, but uh, we'll probably do it remotely. But uh, if there's an album you really want to hear, uh, that's a guaranteed way. Uh, what is that, 240 bucks for a year? Yeah. You could sign up for a year, and uh, we'll guarantee right. that we'll record whatever uh, whatever episode you want. And all your, uh, all your friends and family. As long as it's and... not like hate-filled. But, you all, your fr- <laughs> all your friends and family get to listen to you on uh, yeah. some sort of uh, listening device. So please give it a look and throw us some love. You can find it at patreon.com 
forward slash audio judo. You can also go to our website, audiojudo.com. There's links to the Patreon. There's also uh, links to some merchandise on our store. Uh, if you want uh, coffee mugs, hats, T-shirts, all that stuff is available on there. Yeah, coming up in the next uh, couple of months, we have episodes uh, for Genesis, Beck, Steely Dan, as well as our annual holiday episode with special guest and best of 2020 episodes. Uh, come back and listen. Send us your feedback. Uh, Facebook at Audio Judo, Twitter and Instagram at Audio Judo. Uh, also, there's time, like Kyle said, to get some lovely audio swag, audio judo swag, mm. and f- Christmas presents. Oh yeah, because that's about the time right now. Right. Stuff your stockings with pretty much anything our logo will fit on. Uh, and if you want something a little bigger and more artsy, check out our partner, Volumetric mm. Design, for some great artwork of visualized audio. It's very cool work and uh, looks yeah, good. As, looks good as a poster. Uh, use the coupon code AudioJudo for a discount at their website, and the website is volumetricdesign.com. And there's a link on our website as well. Yes, there is. Other than that, I got nothing else. That's it. Yep. All right, everybody. Uh, take care. We'll uh, see you in a couple weeks. Bye. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.